Welcome back, everyone. Jose Nino here for another episode of El Nino Speaks. Now let's get to it. Today's discussion will be about constitutional carry. For those who have followed my regular email list or appearances on podcasts or written interviews, you've probably heard or read me mention constitutional carry on multiple occasions. Perhaps you think it's some autistic fixation of mine. Guilty as charged. I tend to have a slavish devotion to politics and pride myself in getting all of the finer details of politics down to a science. But in all seriousness, my emphasis on talking about constitutional carry is based on my work experience. I previously worked at the National Association for Gun Rights one of the fastest growing Second Amendment organizations in the nation. It stands out as being a staunchly no compromise Second Amendment organization, meaning that they will work night and day to repeal all unconstitutional gun laws from the federal level all the way down to the local level. So this group is hardcore. One of their primary focuses in terms of legislative priorities was, and still is, the passage of constitutional carry across multiple states. And in an ideal world, they would probably try to get constitutional carry in every state in the nation. However, that's becoming more of a pipe dream, which I will touch upon later in this discussion. But really, Their goal is to get constitutional carry in as many states as possible at at this point. If you're wondering what is constitutional carry, constitutional carry refers to the concept that any lawful individual should be allowed to carry a firearm without a permit, without having to beg the government for permission. At its core, constitutional carry is a significant step towards restoring a crucial aspect of the right to bear arms. Based on the numbers of states that have adopted constitutional carry, it is clearly one of the most successful movements on the American right of the last 20 years, like hands down, if not the best, I'd argue it's the best, but some people will try to use other counterexamples. When you look at a lot of other right-wing pet issues, say abortion, school choice, taxes, they really don't compare. I will say this, that homeschooling and school choice are making very rapid progress right now as more people opt out of the public schooling system, which is, I believe, a silver lining of the Wu flu pandemic. But that's a whole other topic for a different episode. Nevertheless, there is a big takeaway when we try to study these successful right-wing movements, which tend to be a rarity when you look at just how dominant the left is. What we see with successful right-wing movements is a almost necessity to look at historical trends and understand the history of said movements and learn how they were able to take off because we don't become successful in politics 
by just doing things on the fly. We plan, prepare, evaluate, and interpret history so that we don't fall into the same traps that our less successful predecessors have fallen into in the past. And yeah, like I said before, in any type of political campaign that you have plans of embarking on, you should always be planning and analyzing the broader political environment that surrounds you. Looking at the overall history of the constitutional carry and just the broader license carry movement is instructive and informative as well, because it gives us an idea of how the right can actually win. Shocker. But yeah, because politics these days can be quite crazy. And as a result, we sometimes like forget about some of the broader, bigger picture issues in political history. And the right to carry movements are a very good exhibit A for right-wingers of all stripes to look at if they want to be effective in politics. So yeah, let's look at like an overall historical overview of the right to carry movement. What most people tend to forget is that before the 1980s, there really wasn't any concept of license, much less unlicensed concealed carry in the vast portion of the U.S. The lone example was Vermont, but the Vermont case was particular in how it established its law via a Supreme Court decision in 1903 that ruled that a certain locality's gun control measures that impeded on people's right to carry were unconstitutional. And as a result, the state Supreme Court decision established a de facto constitutional carry standard in the state. So for over a century, Vermont has had unlicensed carry. That's why you hear the concept of Vermont carry, also known as constitutional carry, used throughout the last century or so to refer to constitutional carry before constitutional carry became an accepted thing. And yet, when you look at constitutional carry's overall history, it was an elusive goal for a time. And it was just basically confined to Vermont. On a total sidebar, Vermont, though, has gone on a significant anti-gun path in recent years after its spineless Republican governor, Phil Scott, signed off on universal background check legislation, red flag gun confiscation orders, and magazine capacity restrictions. And none of this occurred in a vacuum, though, because of the changing political dynamics of the past decade, and especially in the aftermath of the Parkland massacre of 2018, states like Vermont, and I would say like specifically blue states, have witnessed remarkable changes in gun policy. Like now, if you're a blue state, it is pretty much a given that your state is going to have tough gun laws and a lot of other measures that impede lawful citizens' ability to keep and bear arms. The good news is that Vermont's constitutional carry law is still in effect, although there is a downside in that the state does not issue permits so that its residents can enjoy reciprocity with other states. Whatever, because let's just go back to the progression of concealed carry reforms, the main topic of discussion. 
when you look at the modern concealed carry reform movement, it was largely motivated by the numerous infringements that the federal government was able to carry out during the 1930s and the 1960s, respectively, where the government basically eviscerated large portions of the Second Amendment. You saw this from like the establishment of like new taxes on a lot of rifles to basic like interstate regulation of a lot of firearms purchases and like how firearms would be dealt. Like you had like the federal licensed firearms dealers, which were established through the 1968 Gun Control Act. And as a result, this kind of coincided to a broader trend of political centralization that swept across the United States. And that's why it's like very important that when we look at the Second Amendment, we realize it's connected to so many other issues from voluntary association to economic freedom. So if one, like if the Second Amendment goes, pretty much all our other rights go. But there was always going to be fight amongst the American population due to the fact that the Second Amendment and just like the overall right to bear arms is so ingrained in American political culture that you saw a lot of pro-gun activists start using gradualist methods starting in the 1970s to roll back the gun control onslaught that took place decades prior. Because of the fact that there was no real way to affect change at the federal level, many of these activists pursued more pragmatic campaigns at the state level. And you saw this really kick off in the late 1970s when the state of Georgia effectively initiated the modern-day concealed carry movement after joining states like Connecticut, New Hampshire, and Washington and passing some form of license carry. As time progressed, states from like Florida all the way to even, say, like Utah began to pass license carry in one form or the other, even like blue states as well, although these blue states like Hawaii still have like really, really restrictive concealed carry. Nevertheless, like the concept of like license carry became a mainstream issue because it used to be totally prohibited. By the year 2000, give or take, most of the country had some form of license carry. It had some laggards, but like the issue was thoroughly mainstream. Though it should be noted that even when license concealed carry became more mainstream, constitutional carry was still an outlier. And as mentioned before, Vermont was like the only state with permitless carry at this juncture. Though things did begin to change at the dawn of the 21st century. And it basically all started with Alaska passing constitutional carry in 2003, which broke a hundred year drought in terms of enacting constitutional carry. And from that point forward, you did begin to see much more momentum on the issue, though I would add that the turning point came in 2010 when Arizona, under the leadership of Governor Jan Brewer, signed Senate Bill 1108 into law that year. And at that point, Arizona 
not only became the third state to adopt constitutional carry, the second one to do so via the legislative process, because remember, Vermont did it through a Supreme Court decision, but also this kicked off the constitutional carry movement. Like from that point forward, tons of other state, red states join Arizona in the mix. And for some perspective, when former President Barack Obama was elected in 2009, there were just only two constitutional carry states, Vermont and Alaska. Fast forward to the present, 2021, we now have 21 states with constitutional carry. And if things continue to go the way they're going in now, I fully expect nearly all red states to adopt constitutional carry by 2025. And I argue because of the mass polarization and the overall breakdown in public order that we're seeing now due to like defund the police and just the overall like hostility towards the concept of basic law enforcement, you will see more red states with solid gun cultures end up embracing this legislation sooner or later. I would stress that constitutional carry's success did not happen by chance. It's really like the product of disaffected gun owners recognizing the federal government's inability to take on the gun issue. Thus, like this prompted them to focus their attention elsewhere. And instead of engaging in pie in the sky federal campaigns to roll back gun control, most of these guys just shifted their gaze to state legislatures, the areas where they could exert more control and change public policy. This is a theme that many people in politics need to understand because you're not going to always win in the big leagues. And definitely you're not going to win in the big leagues when you're starting right out. You're probably going to have to be much more humble in terms of your political aspirations and work at the local, municipal level, county level, or even state level, depending on the state you're in. But you just really can't have that much of an instant impact in D.C. because of how gridlocked it is. And I have noted this before in articles that I've written at the Mises Institute that at this point in American history, there is significant policy ghettoization where you see states adopt controversial policies, say constitutional carry, for example, that would otherwise not pass at the federal level. I would also note like a much more notable case that just drives this point even further is abortion. And you'll see this in my home state of Texas, where when they recently passed a restrictive abortion law, which I can almost guarantee you would never pass at the federal level these days. So what we're seeing is that states will pass very controversial legislation that grassroots activists on both sides of the political spectrum will desire. So if you're in a red state, grassroots policies like constitutional carry, abortion restriction, banning critical race theory, banning sanctuary cities, and passing pro-homeschooling measures, that stuff is all on the political menu and can easily be passed. Now, for a lefty state, you'll see like free health care, free education, abortion on demand, gun control pass without relative problems. But always remember that even if you're in a red state, 
you still have got to put in the work because there's a lot of establishment Republican types out there that really just love dragging their feet and maintaining the status quo. But nevertheless, if you're in a solidly red state, the political possibilities for you to bring about controversial public policy is much higher than if you're like in a solid blue state. Actually, if you're in a blue state, let's be honest, you're kind of up a creek without a paddle. Your only options really are using nullification measures like the county or municipal level or just flat out moving to a red state because that's just how the cookie crumbles these days. There's a lot of blue states like California, New York, what have you, that I think are just completely out of the question for any type of takeover at the state level. It's like those states are just so far gone. You might as well just find some like rural area and kind of turn it into a conservative stronghold, nullify bad laws that are passed at the state level, or just flat out get that county, if especially if it borders an adjacent red state, and just join that red state because there's just like no real way I think a lot of the right can make major change in blue states these days. The politics we have now is just incredibly polarized and it requires a much more like adaptative like approach to politics. Like we cannot rely on the schoolhouse rock model that we're accustomed to. That type of politics has just gone out the window. It's the politics of yesteryear, if you will. And this is one of my main beefs with the broader conservative movement and their thought leaders is that they tend to spend a lot of time reinventing the wheel using suboptimal political strategies or just getting way too fancy with unproven political issues instead of just looking at what currently works and jumping on those trends. At the very least, they should be learning from the successes of like the various movements that we see, such as constitutional carry. A lot of things really, when we break down politics, tend to be hard, but they're like also like simple, if you will, in that you just need to like stay on course and just put in the work and you'll eventually get to your goal. Don't get fancy about it. And what we see with the Second Amendment movement, specifically like the state level causes like constitutional carry, is that there is a pragmatic model for the right to follow and replicate and also be just like applied to other single issues, such as banning critical race theory, homeschooling, and even pro-life campaigns. Because a lot of politics does follow the same logic. There's nothing like special about a given issue. So if you use strategies that help you pass constitutional carry, there's actually significant carryover into issues like homeschooling, pro-life whatever, like any other issue that's popular among the right that they want to see passed. The whole point is that people actually get serious about activism, learn from successful movements, and also the unsuccessful movements, because the latter will teach you the type of mistakes that you shouldn't be making that countless other people have made before. So you should always be studying as many examples of political campaigns from the success stories to like the horror stories so that you have like a thorough understanding of how things work in politics. And most importantly, you just need to get out there and do stuff because at the end of the day, learning by doing is the most powerful force in people's political development. Even if you fail, 
you're essentially failing forward in the sense that you're actually acquiring experience and that experience will go a long way in building you as a political actor. So even when you fail, you get stronger. And personally, I just prefer the doers who will take like the major blows along their journey so that they like actually grow as a political operative. Whereas I just completely cannot stand armchair activists who just enjoy talking smack from their keyboard and doing nothing to advance their cause. But that's just me. Like ultimately it's the people that do the work that end up affecting the change that they want to see in the world. Now, that's it for today. But if you found this episode of El Nino Speaks interesting, here's a shameless plug. My premium newsletter, The Nino File, contains many key insights on political strategy that will help you build political organizations, run effective political campaigns, make politicians' lives miserable, and most importantly, pass good legislation and repeal bad legislation. The Nino file is like the simplified version of all like the political strategies that I routinely talk about. And you can find it in a relatively concise article form. So if you want to have like a real world political impact, I strongly suggest subscribing to the Nino file on Patreon or Subscribestar. And with that, El Nino has spoken. See y'all next time.